If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think in writing a book about the Victorians or any previous age, it's important to recognize that one can learn from them rather than just imitate them and recognize that they will get things wrong as well as get things right. That was Jacob Rees-Mogg on the challenges and opportunities of comparing modern society to that of the Victorians. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. There's a long tradition in the UK of current and former politicians turning their hands to history. And last week, Conservative MP Jacob Rees-Mogg joined their ranks with his new book entitled The Victorians. The book is formed around the lives of 12 individuals from the 19th century, who Rees-Mogg believes were titans who forged Britain. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, met up with the author in London recently to discuss his choices and what he believes we today could learn from our Victorian forebears. First question really is, what prompted you to write this book about the Victorians? Um, partly the current state of politics, that people always complain that the politicians of the modern age are not uh, of the stature of those of previous times, and that the great figures have gone. And I thought it was interesting to see if there really were the great figures. And then, by chance, uh, rereading Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians and thinking how extraordinarily unfair it was and that we simply have a wrong image of the Victorians who created the world we live in to such an extraordinary extent. Um, your book follows the lives of 12 specific uh, people and you say that it's reasonable to complain that the selection is somewhat arbitrary. Not only reasonable to complain, it's sensible to complain. It is arbitrary. I chose people who I find interesting and compelling. And I haven't tried to uh, do a focus group as to who people might want to hear about or tried to balance it for politically correct reasons. And I focused on people who have some excitement about them. So W.G. Grace may not be everybody's choice and Gordon may not be everybody's choice, but I thought they were interesting people to put in. Were there any people that came close to inclusion but that you had to rule out or? Oh, the the difficulty was excluding people uh, and Isambard Kingdom Brunel was a figure I was going to include who would be very easy to include but ultimately there has to be some some limit. It would be 
very, very easy to have 20 people, probably 100 people in such a book. Uh, but there's a question of how much you can write on each one. I'd argue there's a 13th person who you have just mentioned, which is Lytton Strakey. Um, he, I think, turns up in four of the chapter introductions. Mm. Why is he such a constant presence in this book? And who, who was he? Who was Lytton Strachey? Yeah. Lytton Strachey uh, was part of the Bloomsbury set, and he wrote a book um, in the early 20th century going through Victorian heroes and saying how useless they all were. And why do I think that's important? I think because his view of the Victorians has become and remains the predominant view. And that's in spite of many distinguished historians writing to the contrary and trying to rebalance. But actually, if you ask people about the Victorians, I think the general consensus is a straight-ish view uh, of them. And so that's why he's important and important to try and answer what he was saying. And his criticisms in his book were very unfair. What were his criticisms? What were his criticisms? Well, his criticisms, what he did was he focused on everybody's flaws without considering the good that they were doing. Um, so with Cardinal Manning, who I didn't include in this book, but easily could have done, he spends most of his time focusing on the disagreements between Cardinal Manning and Cardinal Newman and were they jealous of each other and all sorts of peripheral um, ecclesiastical gossip rather than the fact that Manning was an incredibly important force within Catholicism but also in labour relations in London in the late 19th century and the great good that he did um, with helping dock workers and in um, representing people who didn't otherwise have a voice. If his views were so peripheral, why do you think they have proved so long-lasting? Oh, because I think it's in the nature of one generation to think that the previous generation didn't get everything right. Uh, And there's a strange dichotomy in this sense, isn't there? Because I was saying earlier that we look back and say we don't have such good figures. But we also like to think that the immediately preceding period was less good than our period. So if you want to pick a decade that was particularly useless in the United Kingdom. Everybody focuses on the 1970s um, and may well continue doing so for a long time, uh, even though there were big figures like Dennis Healy and Margaret Thatcher who were coming to the to the fore. Uh, and I think that that's partly in the nature of society, that you want to think um, that the immediate predecessors got things wrong. And of course, after 1914, 1918, the Great War, um, People wanted to feel that there wasn't this brilliant era that they'd just thrown away. They had to have some self-justification for where they had got to. Hmm. Um, your first chapter is on Robert Peel, mm-hmm. um, who you say is, our, is arguably our greatest male prime minister. Um, what were his achievements to earn him that possible title? Well, the fascinating thing about Peel is how long-lasting what he did became. So if you take the establishment of of the police force, of the Metropolitan Police, they are still called Bobbies in memory of Robert Peel. And once he had set up a police force, nobody thought, well, we'd better get rid of it. Whereas before it had been set up, there were great arguments as to whether it was the right thing to do. Uh, With the repeal of the Corn Laws and Peel's Banking Act, um, he set the financial framework for how the country achieved prosperity really up until 1914, basically being with arguments, a free trading nation, but also a nation of sound money, incredibly important Tory principles. But he was a 
figure who also split the Tory party, kept the Tories out of office for 28 years. And he um, is an inconsistent figure because he takes very strong views on things and then changes his mind to hold completely the opposite view. And he does this over Catholic emancipation, he does it over reform, and he does it over the Corn Laws. Uh, And he gets things right, but only having got them very wrong to start with. So he's a very interesting figure in that regard. And as you say, he was key in forming the modern Conservative Party. And and you also say that uh, that was uh, key in protecting Britain from some of the changes that caused destruction elsewhere. Why do you think it was so important? And I think Disraeli is very important in this. Uh, I think that they come to understand democracy, and and Palmerston's important in this too. Some things Palmerston says about... He's not, Palmerston's not in favour of extending the franchise, but he feels that those who have the franchise have a duty to represent those who don't have the franchise. So not just the members of Parliament, each individual voter is representing uh, those who don't have a vote and has a responsibility to society to do that. And you see in Europe during the mid-19th century, particularly in 1848, the overthrowing of regimes that haven't been able to adapt and Peel, what's he doing with respect to this, where well, he has the Tamworth Manifesto, the first time there is a manifesto issued uh, for an election. It's not just an address to the local electors, it's a national address. It's his understanding that there is a broader political community that needs to be kept happy, not just um, uh, the, the, the elite and the mob. Do you think the Conservative Party of this period that we're talking about is in any way recognisable as that of today? Um the answer to that is yes and no, uh, and and that you can work out, and I quite like working out how the Tory party basically starts in the Civil War, and you can trace a lineage through, but the issues they were dealing with at those times were very different from the ones that come up today. But there is one basic underlying principle, and that is that the Conservative Party believes that society is built from the bottom up rather than ordered from the top down, and that therefore you have a community that you are trying to help individually to do what they want, to improve in Disraeli's terms, improve the condition of the people, and that that is a thread running through, rather than the idea that the collective can do things for people and make them happier that way. Are there any values from the Victorian period that the Conservative Party embodied that you'd like to see perhaps strengthened or reintroduced? Well, I mean, I think sound money is one of them. Uh, and um, I also believe in free trade, though the Tory party has split over free trade before and is quite divided over it at the moment. I was intrigued by that qualifier that he was the best male peacetime leader. Um, was he bested by any female? Well, Margaret Thatcher is one of my uh, great heroes. And had she been a Victorian, would unquestionably have got a large section in, in the book. Um, Margaret Thatcher, again, is a prime minister who does things that have long-lasting effects, that um, essentially changes the terms of trade of politics that continue to this day, that Tony Blair adopted a lot of Thatcherism when he became prime minister. And I think that's very important in judging a prime minister historically, is does their work continue? Two of the other leaders you talk about we have touched on, which is Gladstone and Israeli. Um, To what extent was their... Uh, contribution defined by their relationship with each other? Um, well, they loathed each other. Uh, one of the worst bits of Gladstone is his very anti-Semitic comments that he makes about Disraeli uh, and um, that were 
But to modern ears, deeply shocking. But I think even to Victorian ears, we're going much further than most people went. They really, really disliked each other. And Disraeli accuses Gladstone of being a shoplifter in an election speech. And the Times gets frightfully sniffy about this and says it isn't the way to carry out election campaigns, which does happen in modern times too, that people say things and uh, uh, the newspapers get frightfully upset. Um, uh, I think... The, the, the argument Roy Jenkins makes about the 1867 reform bill is that Disraeli basically does everything that Gladstone doesn't want, and therefore we get a much bigger reform than we would otherwise have achieved. Um, I think this is very special pleading for Gladstone. Actually, I think if you read Disraeli's novels, you see that he was in favour of widening the franchise quite early on, and he very skillfully manages to carry a Tory party that wasn't so keen to widen the franchise to a much wider franchise than it was expecting, but that he uses his opposition to Gladstone to get these things through. And I think Gladstone is an incredible figure, but he's not a very subtle one. Disraeli, on the other hand, is incredibly subtle. And history looks back and it admires the certainty of Gladstone, the uprightness of Gladstone, and it thinks that Disraeli is a bit of a chancer. Actually, Disraeli did much more to improve people's lives, to get what he wanted done, uh, than Gladstone did. I, I started the book, doing the work for the book, thinking that Gladstone was the greater figure than Disraeli, um, in spite of my political bias. And I ended the book absolutely convinced that Disraeli is the much greater political figure. Most of what Gladstone tried to do didn't, in the end, work. And most of what Disraeli tried to do did work. That's interesting then. So you're you're not saying that these uh, 12 figures are in any way unblemished or unflawed. They have their flaws, yet they still have something about them to contribute to modern societies. Is that right? Well, an understanding of the power of human nature. Uh, that yes, they're all flawed. So are we all. And, you know, um, uh, that's always been true. That's part of the human condition. And Gordon of Khartoum is unquestionably flawed, but he's quite brilliant too, and his leadership skills are extraordinary, and his charitable view of the world quite remarkable. Um, I mean, he goes into a battle in the um, Chinese wars uh, just carrying a swagger stick, and he's at the front and leading, and he wins. And, and people can't believe his courage. He's completely unafraid of death. He is... Um, religious bordering on religious mania. He writes letters to his sister saying, oh, I've run out of money, um, but I'm sure God will provide some for me. And uh, <laughs> Julie, he seems to have enough money to get through. He gives away most of his money. He's incredibly generous. Um, uh, he, he gets a gold medal from the Emperor of China for his service. And he um, hammers off his name so that nobody knows who it is and sells it to give money to the poor. And he's a very good man, but he won't be told what to do by Gladstone. He is not going to allow slave traders in the Sudan to take Khartoum. That's his aim. And he does his best to stop them and, of course, dies very heroically in the process. So it's recognizing that people who do great things and are exciting still have flaws, but Strachey concentrated entirely on the flaws and didn't look at the great things that they were able to do. These political figures are really interesting in their own right. Do you see any of them as being closest to your political stance or you as a political figure? Or I suppose what I'm saying is who would be the Victorian Jacob Rees-Mogg? Oh gosh, that I hadn't thought about. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm um, uh, uh, bold enough, arrogant enough to say that 
I am like one of these figures. Um, the figures that I find very attractive of, of, the, of the politicians, I mean, I'd love to be W.G. Grace, who wouldn't, but I'd never achieve a millionth of that. Um, uh, Palmerston is, is, is fantastic because Palmerston understands what people want, the popular mood. He's very good at delivering it, and he stands up for the nation in foreign affairs. And I think Palmerston is, is very impressive, much underrated prime minister. How would you and I suppose other politicians today fit in with the politics of the Victorian period? Oh, I think most political skills are transferable through the generations. Um, I always think it's interesting when you look at uh, the Prime Minister's PPS, Parliamentary Private Secretary. So the, the Prime Minister and other ministers have a, a fellow MP who is not a minister, but who is their conduit to MPs and a constant presence at their side. Now, the power of presence in modern politics is enormous because you're the person there when the Prime Minister is saying, well, should I do X or should I do Y? And without having any specific authority, you're there. And you say, well, I think X sounds like a good idea. And that has a much greater influence potentially than the Secretary of State, who isn't on hand, who is writing a learned paper on X or Y, but you don't get until you've made your mind up. Uh, and in, in medieval courts, the person who is most influencing the monarch is the person who has access. It's why the post of groom of the stole is so important, because you're there. And this carries on. So I think politics has long-run continuities. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Disraeli and Gladstone are obviously quite famous figures. People might have heard of them. Uh, some of the other people in the book are now less well-known. Charles Napier is one of them. What were his achievements? Why is he in this book? N Napier, uh, indeed, you're, you're right, because there's a statue to Napier in Trafalgar Square. And um, as I mentioned in the book, Ken Livingstone said, why do we have a statue to Napier um, who nobody's ever heard of? And Napier was enormously famous um, and very popular. He was a national hero and champion. Napier's a surprisingly misunderstood figure. Everyone thinks of him as a, an empire grabber because of the punch uh, joke, Peccavi, I have sinned, and he was told not to take the province of Sindh, and he took the province of Sindh, and therefore he's seen as being arch-empire builder of the Cecil Rhodes mould. He's absolutely not. He's much more a Blairite believer that those who have power should use it to the good of other peoples. And one of the reasons he seeks to take Sindh is because he believes the rulers are so corrupt. And fascinatingly, in spite of this appearance as an empire grabber, he's a very liberal figure. He's a cousin of Charles James Fox. But during the Chartist troubles, uh, as a general, he's incredibly sympathetic to the Chartists and recognizes that they have some justice in what they're saying. 
and is therefore very keen to maintain law and order as much as to protect the Chartists from danger from others as to protect the factory owners who he doesn't much like from risk from the Chartists. He's a, he's a much more nuanced figure than I think he's currently remembered as. And he's not a success. And his taking of Sindh does not lead to better government for, for Sindh. But he's highly principled. There's his great comment uh, about Suti. Uh, he says, um, you have a custom uh, in your country of burning widows. We have a custom in our country of hanging people who burn women. Um, let us both follow our customs. And it's a very interesting thing to say. He is in favor of what you might call liberal values, and he believes that there is sort of right and wrong, and that it is wrong to burn widows, and he should bring right. Um, but he doesn't achieve it in the end. And this is a bit like Tony Blair in Iraq, that the motivation is a pure one. It's to protect people, it's to help people, but actually it's very, very difficult to make people change the way that they want to live and are used to living from on high. You have to build it up from the bottom. Is it not the case, though, that he extended his military adventures far beyond the point which he should have stopped or that he was even instructed to stop? He goes well beyond his instructions, but he does say because he believes the rulers are so bad. But doesn't he cause massacres and all kinds of horrific no, things? No, he doesn't. No, that's, that. not, that's not true. The, the accusations of massacres and of rapes are, are entirely false, and, and historians have established that. That's not just pro-imperial propaganda. At, or, or that he was motivated by money. He writes about how money was a big important factor for him in, in doing these things. I think money is clearly a secondary factor to him. Uh, that You are still at the end of the age of bounty, but he, he wins a battle and is given all the ceremonial swords and so on, jeweled swords, etc. He gives them all back, presents them back. So he's not, he's not a rapacious empire builder. He's not as uninterested in money as Gordon, but Gordon is truly exceptional. Um, you mentioned there Ken Livingstone's comments about the statue in Trafalgar Square. Um, do you have any sympathy to the idea that statues that have become culturally redundant should be should be moved? That their time has passed, we should put other people who are more kind of reflective of, of the present day in their place? Uh, no, I think you should add to the collection of, of statues. Um, I, I'm no admirer of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, I think that uh, he was a disastrous figure, particularly terrible in Ireland. But I'm not campaigning for removal of his statue outside the House of Parliament. I, mean, I think as he's the one man who sent troops into Parliament to determine division lobbies, it wasn't the right place to put it, but it's there and it's part of our history. And Napier is part of our history. Moving his statue doesn't take the history away. And what about Gordon, whose statue is not only um, in London, just behind the Ministry of Defence, but also in Melbourne? I mean, he was a hero across the empire, um, should he be taken down across the empire, or is it just an interesting historic fact that there he is and how important he once was, and of course how forgotten he now is? Mm. So it's about broadening our historical understanding, not replacing the existing historical understanding. Is, is, that, is that right? I think that's right. Uh, I mean, you do get, I suppose, to the position we're in in Parliament Square, that there isn't much room for any other statues, um, and indeed in the Houses of Parliament itself. So do you say, well, these people are now unheard of, we'll move them into storage? And I think probably not. I think you find new places for the statues to go. 
Um, we have mentioned them in passing. There's two military figures, Sleeman and Gordon, um, who you say that you read about when you were 14, is that right? And that's why they're included here? Uh, that, that's right. Uh, this Jan Morris's wonderful book, Heaven's Command. And I remember being very struck by what Sleeman achieved, that um, it, moral relativism is a very powerful force in the modern world. Sleeman was not a moral relativist. He saw that people were being murdered as they were traveling, built up the evidence about it, and did something about it, and stopped it. It's quite an extraordinary achievement, and it's an achievement by filing cabinet, really, that, that he does the detailed work. He travels everywhere with his wife, he works incredibly hard doing it, and he stops this very dangerous, nasty practice that made travel in India uh, very risky um, by good, solid administrative efficiency. Now, he's, he's early for Victorian. He just goes into the beginning of Victoria's reign. Most of his work's already been done. But nonetheless, he seems an almost archetypal Victorian in making things work through being efficient, through um, uh, engineering a system. You mentioned moral relativism there, which is something that kind of recurs throughout the book as being a downside of the modern world. Are there not dangers um, in the imperial project of this period of this sort of extreme heightened moral certainty that lots of these figures seem to exhibit, that they know that they are in the right, come what may. Does that not cause problems in the empire? Is that not a flaw of the empire? You're absolutely right. And that's why Napier is so interesting, because we are all morally certain that Sooty is wrong. It is evil, as was he. Um, uh, and yet his involvement in the sin probably didn't help people's lives. So he had moral certainty, and over the certainty we are equally certain. But his loathing of the rulers of Sindh didn't actually make people's lives better. You say the same of Gordon. Gordon was absolutely determined to put down the slave trade, um, but did what he tried work. Well, no, in the end, it well, in the end it did, but in the interim it didn't. Um, and moral certainty is important. And you should stand up for your moral certainty. You shouldn't say, oh, Sooty is right. But on the other hand, you may find that imposing your morals doesn't work. So I think you can learn from that. I think in writing a book about the Victorians or any previous age, it's important to recognize that one can learn from them rather than just imitate them and recognize that they will get things wrong as well as get things right. We should talk about, uh, there's been some criticism that there is only one, there's only one woman in this book. Um, what would you say to people who say, if we're going to apply some of these lessons to the modern world, we need to make sure that we are applying them across the spectrum of, of people who, who now exist, who, who now have kind of power? Well, I think it's a completely daft criticism, because in Victorian England, the place was run by men. And therefore, if you were to um, have had even numbers, it would have been pure tokenism. And that I don't think is at all interesting. Um, there are some women who definitely could have qualified, but what new could I say about Florence Nightingale? But you, you know, do write about Victoria, I, of, of well, she's the queen. many books have been written. But I mean. she, she's the queen. She's the top figure in all of this. And also, um, she, uh, her reputation is not um, of the highest. And again, I think that um, Queen Victoria is very important in how the monarchy exists today. And, and Vernon Bogdaner, a very distinguished constitutional uh, historian, 
has pointed out that basically the constitutional monarchy left by Victoria is the one we've still got. It's quite something a hundred years later. But I don't, I don't think I could have evened up the numbers of women without it being tokenistic. And it was a male society. Women didn't have the vote. There were no women prime ministers. There were no women cabinet ministers. There were no women governors general. Um, so unless I was to spread my net much wider, and then how do you keep the numbers down to 12, I, I think it would have been political correctness for its own sake. Mm. I suppose the discomfort possibly comes in the fact that we're applying the values of a society who was different in its makeup to a society today that is vastly different in, in many ways, including this gender sort of makeup. Yes, I, I, but as I was saying at the, earlier on, um, you can learn from them, but you don't have to imitate them. Uh, and you can learn from where they were successful. But of course we live in a society now where everybody has the vote. Bear in mind the 1832 Reform Bill took the vote away from a very small number of women. It's only in 1832 that the limitation on the franchise is brought in. Now, the circumstances of having the vote as a woman in 1832 were very narrow, but they were possible. After 1832, there is a specific um, ban on women having the vote. So there are people who will say that including a cricketer is a strange choice. When you've only got 12 people to write about, and one of them being a cricketer, uh, that's a little weird. What would you say to that? Well, I'm partly guilty as charged, um, Malad. Uh, uh, yes, W.G. Grace is um, a different type of character, uh, and I was heavily influenced by uh, my eldest son, who was very keen that W.G. Grace should be included. But actually, having initially thought that I was going out on a limb bit with Grace, Grace is quite remarkable. Uh, he has a degree of celebrity. One of his biographies um, adds up all the press cuttings for Grace as opposed to Sarah Bernhardt, who was the great and famous actress uh, of the time. Grace has more press cuttings. Grace is, in a sense, the biggest celebrity other than Queen Victoria, and he does this through cricket. And he creates modern cricket. Um, his ability is just so much greater than everybody else. I think in the time it takes him, this is in in the book, um, to score 50 centuries, the other 50 centuries are scored by 13 different batsmen. He is head and shoulders above everybody else. And the, the averages against modern averages don't really show that because he he was playing on wickets where the sheep had been taken off the night before because they weren't using lawnmowers. Lords... Um, is still having sheep uh, keep the um, outfield down until the 1860s, if I remember rightly. People want to check exactly. It's in the book, but it's, it's, a, it's around then. Uh, so the wickets are terrible, um, and yet he has this incredible ability. But he's completely commercial. We have this idea, and this is one of the things about the Victorians. We think they're a bit po-faced, a bit dull, and very, very proper. Well, Grace is completely mercenary. Test cricket starts because he wants to make money. He plays 11 against 22 because it will draw a crowd in. And if it doesn't draw a crowd in, he won't do it. Um, the crowd doubles at events he goes to. The entrance fee can be put up because he draws in the punters. And we think that test cricket has come about because it is the pure form of cricket. No, it doesn't. It comes about because uh, Grace saw that it could um, uh, fill the stadiums. And that, I think, is fascinating because um, 
people can be very pompous about changes in cricket and 2020 and all these new developments. My bet is that Grace would have been for all and every one of those as long as they got people into the cricket grounds. And that's not, I think, what most people would expect me to have been saying about Grace. Mm. Do you see this as quite a radical era generally? I think they, they had a very good understanding of change. They saw the benefits of change. Um, they were very driven. They wanted to succeed. But they also liked the continuity with the past. So the Victorians um, have swallowed the Whig interpretation of history. They think that the whole of English history has led to the perfection of the Victorian era. But equally, uh, everything around them is is changing and, and developing, that you get the extension of the franchise and you get the extension of uh, newspapers, you get um, the extension of travel. Um, I have a brief mention of Thomas Cook, who started um, temperance tours. I think the first one went to Loughborough, um, and you could go to a temperance meeting on a train that he had specially booked. I mean, really exciting stuff. Uh, but they were developing and innovating. And it's why Brunel was such a strong contender, because the spread of the railways is so important. But so actually was W.H. Smith, because uh, it required the railways to allow newspapers and newspapers then transformed the political scene because people felt they had an involvement. So it's a huge period of change uh, that they embraced as well as feeling that it fitted in with their historic context. Mm. Are there themes or traits you admire across these 12 people? Can we sketch themes or patterns across this cast of characters? Well, I think they all had a considerable self-confidence, an inner belief and they believed that it was possible through their efforts to do good and important things. Uh, I don't think they had any interest in the management of decline, which I think is the great failing of the early 21st century, that people feel um, we can never get any better or even be as good as we once were. We just have to accept that we're slightly drifting down. I don't think any of my 12 figures would have believed that that was right. Um, and something else that I think emerges, which is interesting, is this idea of patriotism, of, of, of believing in your nation. Um, do you think that animated these people on a personal level? Um, I think that they had, I mean, they had a pre-First World War view of patriotism, which the First World War destroyed and has never come back, that um, they believed that the United Kingdom, which a lot of them call England regardless, um, Palmerston and Israeli hardly ever say anything other than, than England. Um, but they believe that the United Kingdom is a force for good in the world and in the development of humanity, and that is something to be proud of, and that it can be done by this country on its own and can help others in the same way. It's not going to be done by um, a collective of other nations. They almost all believe in the power of the nation-state. Although this is obviously a period of empire, H how does that fit in our, our, our view of kind of Britain as a nation-state, but also one that had what's now quite often seen as quite a problematic kind of relationship with the rest of its empire? Well, I, I think they thought of the empire as a force for good. They saw themselves as spreading civilization, And sometimes this worked as in putting down Thuggy, and sometimes it didn't, as in Napier taking Sindh. 
Um, very, it never worked in Afghanistan. And if there's one lesson we can always learn is never get involved in Afghanistan. It's never worked. Uh, it didn't work for Alexander the Great, didn't work um, in the 19th century, and didn't work in the 21st century. Um, so they believe in the empire as a force for good. And the best of them absolutely see from Queen Victoria down the equal validity of every single member of uh, the empire. That Queen Victoria is not in line with customary thinking, that, that uh, she possibly, she thinks she's the queen and everyone else is beneath her, but they're all equally beneath her. That, that, that it doesn't matter whether it is somebody from the Indian Empire or it is um, the greatest duke they are all individual people of validity. And she gets very cross with her household uh, when um, they're causing difficulties uh, about one of her favorites and uh, won't put up with that. Um, the same is true of Gordon um, and indeed of Napier. They both believe that all life is sacred, not just an Englishman's life. And that, again, is not something people necessarily realize about the empire, how many of the imperial figures uh, weren't racist at all. And Sleeman, of course, uh, he's stopping Indians being murdered. He's not stopping um, British administrators being murdered. And he thinks this is crucial, important life work. So there is a nobility in this feeling that you can spread good to the world because you value everybody equally. Um, we're talking uh, now at the end of May, with Brexit still lurking over the horizon. Um, one of the figures in this book seems to be important to you because of the way in which he established some of the mechanisms that we have today. Is, is, is that the case? And, and who is he? Oh, um, Dicey. Uh, Di Dicey is fascinating um, because Dicey uh, uses his academic career to explain uh, how our constitution works and our parliament works. He's also an early advocate of the referendum. And his constitutional understanding is the constitutional understanding that most of us have today of how the British constitution works and how an act of parliament is the highest form of law and cannot be overruled by any other form of law. And in spite of European law, this has remained the case that various judgments said that, yes, European law was superior unless and until the British parliament said that it wasn't but that it was in the gift of the British Parliament to reverse that decision, which has now passed the law to do, but hasn't yet been implemented. Uh, and Dicey provides the intellectual framework for how our constitution works. Before him, it still worked that way, but nobody had set out how it did. And he believed in the referendum because he came to the conclusion that the House of Lords no longer functioned, uh, that he thought that the job of the House of Lords had been to block things until there was a general election, and then the people could give their view and they could go ahead if the general election went a different way. But that the Lords had such an overwhelming conservative majority post the unionist split amongst the Liberals that this had ceased to be um, a balancing effect. It had gone too far. And so he thought the referendum was the answer. Uh, on the subject of Brexit, are there lessons here that we can draw on, do you think, for a post-Brexit Britain? Oh, absolutely. I mean, partly that we should be looking outwards to the world, that we shouldn't be focused narrowly on, on Europe, that um, if you look at what was Palmerston doing, he, he's intimately involved in 
uh, discussions about the American Civil War. He's not just looking at either an imperial focus or a European focus. He's looking genuinely globally. And I think that is a, a, an important thing for us to remember. I think there is the issue of free trade, which increases prosperity. Um, it makes people better off in that Disraeli and Palmerston both felt very strongly that it was their job to improve the condition of the people, make it possible for people to improve their own condition. And I think that's something we should learn from the Victorians. Was the Victorian period, do you think, a high point in British history? And have we regressed since? Um, no, we haven't regressed since. That the, the, the thing to remember about the Victorian period is life expectancy was although growing, and it grows rapidly because as much of anything, public health steps that are taken, so the greater availability of clean water, still life expectancy is low. Death of uh, women in childbirth and of children is still extremely high. They don't have all the modern conveniences and most crucially medical techniques that we have. So no, it, it wasn't a high point that we've never got back to. Actually, We've continued to make progress, but I think we could have made more progress. I think we could have been more confident about ourselves uh, and improved things at a better rate. Can you trace a point historically where we stopped doing that? Was it before Margaret Thatcher? Do you think it was after? Oh, I think um, the, the, um, we begin to lose confidence in ourselves, um, understandably, after the First World War, and then after the Second World War, uh, managing decline is not a completely stupid thing to want to do because we're bust um, and we're in the process of disentangling from empire. Margaret Thatcher then says we can do better than that and that we don't have to carry on managing decline. And that lasts for her period of office. But I think we've then got, got back to it subsequently and Europe is part of that. It's a feeling that we can't do things for ourselves, so we must tie ourselves into a bigger organisation that will protect us from the chill winds of competition that blow from the rest of the world. Um, and uh, so it's, it's 1914, is I suppose the key point. Though there may have been some elements of it coming shortly before. What were the, what were the main flaws of the Victorian period and their mindset, I suppose? Um, what were the the flaws that they weren't um, democratic in the way we are. So you mentioned, why don't I include women? Um, they don't include women, and that is a flaw. They're not using the talents of half the population most of the time. Um, they are still... Um, things are improving, but you have pretty awful conditions in workhouses and in factories. And so for people who aren't succeeding in Victorian Britain, life is pretty difficult. And they don't have any sort of safety. Well, they do have safety nets, but they're so much less than we now have. And they, um, but people who don't get on in Victorian England, Victorian Great Britain, United Kingdom, um, are essentially left to um, sink. And they don't have the structures to help, even if they've got the will. So if you look at the Irish potato famine, they clearly wanted to help, 
but the state did not have the structures in place to be able to help. So there were there were failings by the nature of the age as to what they could do, the limitations of what they could do. One thing that emerges is how much you admire strong political leadership, and you say that's a quality of many people in this book. Why do you think this period produced so many strong, strong, good leaders? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because um, the Lord John Russells and the Lord Aberdeens, we don't need to spend a lot of time discussing that they were there, but they weren't really. Uh, and the um, Peel, Disraeli, Gladstone and Palmerston are really dominant figures. And you could add on Lord Salisbury at the end of the period, who could easily have been part of the, of the book. Um, why do they produce them? It, and why don't we? Because have you look at it, um, we haven't managed in the 20th and early 21st century figures of this dominance. It's unlikely that a lot of our later rate peacetime prime ministers will be having people writing much about them in 200 years from the birth of Elizabeth II. Um, um, so why did they do it? It may partly have been that things were going well, that England was a dominant um, force in the world. It may partly have been their education. They are very, very highly educated. And um, appeal takes his exams in public uh, and is drawing great crowds or drew great crowds to come and listen to him when he was taking his undergraduate exams. It's quite extraordinary what a sheer force of intellect he had and the education, I suppose, um, that encouraged that. Uh, but perhaps it's simply that at the right time you find the right people and that they are there. You've just got to look for them. So it's somewhat chance. I think it. I think to a large degree it ends up being chance, and that um, Disraeli could very easily never have happened. And that is to say, if his father hadn't fallen out with the local synagogue when Disraeli um, was, um, how old exactly was he? He's eleven-ish. He maybe thirteen. Maybe thirteen. Anyway, again, it's in the book. Um, if he hadn't done that, Disraeli could not have become prime minister because he couldn't have got into parliament as as. Um, the Rothschild who kept on standing for Parliament couldn't take his seat. And so it's amazing the thin threads which lead to great figures emerging. So as far as these men were able to shape the destiny of themselves and of their country, they were still bound up with, with fate and chance and all uh, these other things? Very much so, very much so. There was um, a lot of good luck that led to it happening. Well, Victoria herself becoming Queen was um, extremely unlikely to have happened it hadn't been for the idiotic Royal Marriages Act, almost certainly wouldn't uh, have happened. And the Royal Marriages Act is perhaps one of the silliest acts ever passed by Parliament. I mean, it makes the Dangerous Dogs Act look height of intelligence and thoughtfulness. Why was it so? Why was it so silly? Because um, it it cut the pool that they could marry into very significantly, but it was also riddled with loopholes. So that at a certain age, and if, if you had a relationship um, previously with a foreign royal house, you were exempt. So it it ended up, had it been properly used before it was repealed in 2011 and replaced by a new uh, Marriages Act, um, it ended up um, affecting a very small number of rather obscure people and not actually applying to the main line of the royal family, uh, who through at least Princess Alexandra were exempt. 
Finally, then, um, you write that there's never been a century more resented for its success than the 19th. Why do you think that is? And how do you like this book to change people's view of it? I think we have a very romantic view of what the 18th century was like. We think that there were lots of happy people living uh, in the rural idyll and gathering in the crops and having happy, contented lives, sitting out in the sun and drinking cider. And we forget that actually the subsistence existence in rural England in the 18th century was pretty tough uh, and that um, you would have periods of the year when you had shortages of food, uh, you were working, children were working on the farms because you needed their labour. And then you have this image of the dark satanic mills, the factories and all of that. And we ignore the fact that because... Um, you no longer need so many agricultural workers and you have factory workers, you're producing consumer goods that people begin to buy. You begin to have holidays and leisure time, and I've already mentioned Thomas Cook. But I think it's the image of um, industrial Britain against rural Britain. Now, living uh, in northeast Somerset, in the rolling hills just below the Mendips, um, it's easy to be tempted by this romantic view of the beautiful roar a little. But actually, life was pretty tough in the 18th century uh, for people in that condition. And what happened in the 19th century led to the opportunities that we now have and the improvements in everybody's standard of living. But it's urban and it's industrial, and that's less pretty than the 18th century. If you were to write about another period, if you were to find the time to write about another period of British history, which would you choose? Do you have any um, no. Having just completed this book, uh, I'm not thinking of writing another for uh, some time. I think it's been quite, it's quite hard work writing a book, so I think this will do for the moment. That was Jacob Rees-Mogg. The Victorians, 12 Titans Who Forged Britain, is out now, published by W.H. Allen. And that is all for today, but we will return on Thursday when Rachel Reeves will be talking about women in Westminster. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library.